So I always heard a chuckle, you know, people talk about uh, crowds in national parks and it's certainly true, um, but it's, it's a lot of that is concentrated in the most famous parks. And if you sort of step outside that and seek out some of these, you know, places that aren't as well known, you're going to find some incredible landscapes. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk about America's national parks, which are far and away this country's most iconic travel attractions. I talk about how to make the most of a journey to those national parks in an era when, for all their breathtaking beauty, they've garnered a reputation for being overcrowded. Joining me in this conversation is James Kaiser, who's written a number of national park travel guidebooks, including guides to Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, Joshua Tree, Acadia, and Zion. In many ways, this is an extension of last week's episode when I talked about my first vagabonding trip 25 years ago, a trip that proved unforgettable for me in part because of all the amazing national parks I was able to visit in various parts of the United States. I still think about those national parks, and I'd really love to get back to them sooner rather than later. I also think about the American wilderness areas that aren't technically national parks, places like state parks and BLM lands and national monuments, which is something James and I talk about. We also talk about the best way to approach these national parks and wilderness areas, the best ways to avoid crowds, which is easier than you might think. We talk about how to approach these parks when you're visiting them for the first time and how to approach them if you're looking to get off the technology grid and immerse yourself in nature. At one point, James alludes to Ansel Adams. If you don't know that name, he's the photographer who took iconic shots of wilderness areas like Yosemite in the first half of the 20th century. I'll also point out that there's a slight shift in audio quality about eight minutes into the interview. James and his wife are now based in Bogota, Colombia, and their electricity was shut off during the Skype portion of our interview, which means that the last part took place by cell phone. The audio is actually great, it just sounds a little bit different. This episode is brought to you, as usual, by Airtrex, which for almost 30 years now has specialized in round-the-world and multi-stop itineraries for vagabonding journeys. Check out their trip planning tools at Airtrex.com. But for now, please listen in as James Kaiser and I talk about how to get the most out of America's amazing national parks in the 21st century. I recently did a podcast about my first big vagabonding trip, which was 25 years ago. And I lived in a van before hashtag van life. I lived van life. And what I was most excited about, what I dreamed about the most, in addition to things like Mardi Gras and going to New York for the first time and things like that, were national parks. And I really structured my journey around national parks. And I went to places like Joshua Tree, the Grand Canyon, the Everglades, which was so mosquito-ridden that probably wasn't my favorite place, uh, Shenandoah, Acadia, Rocky Mountain National Park, Arches, and of course Yellowstone and Glacier and the Grand Tetons. And so I remember how excited I was 25 years ago to visit these places. And since, since national parks has sort of become your expertise and brand, I'm curious about what your personal connection to national parks is. Yeah, well, for me, it, it started out remarkably early because I grew up actually next to Acadia National Park in Maine. So, uh, you know, every summer of my life, my family was going to Acadia. We were hiking. You know, I honestly, I can't remember a time before Acadia was a part of my life. Um, but at the same time, you know, up there in the northeast corner of the U.S., not a whole lot of national parks, you know, in New England. Acadia is actually the only national park in New England right now. And for me, 
uh, I also went on a on a van life trip before van life was a thing in the mid 90s. And I also was, you know, absolutely thrilled to, to visit these iconic national parks that I had heard about that I'd seen some photos of. And for me, that was really, you know, my introduction to the the greater world of national parks. And again, hitting the highlights, Grand Canyon, Joshua Tree, Yosemite, you know, going to all these places. I think what was interesting back then, you know, now you're inundated with photos. If you want to see, you know, you want to do a little research about visiting a national park, you just type it into Google, Google image search, you know, you're flooded with information. At that point, you might just have one or two pictures in an encyclopedia. Maybe you can find, you know, an Ansel Adams book. Maybe there's a book of landscape photography and you'd see just a handful of images that were amazing and you could just, your mind raced with the possibilities of what else is out there. What, what am I going to see when I, when I go there? What, you know, uh, there was just this air of mystery to it all. And, you know, there still is today. There's still all these places that you can visit in national parks that aren't well publicized, that aren't sort of the iconic view. Uh, but for me, I'll just never forget that moment of, of visiting these iconic places for the first time. And it, it was just, it was such an incredible overpowering experience really sort of put the landscape of America in perspective for me for the very first time. Well, a little later in the conversation, I want to talk about what it's like to visit these national parks now, or even to be inspired by them, you know, when you're a young person like we were um, longer ago. Um, but I'm curious, just real quick, are people, do people still get excited about national parks? Are they still this iconic thing or are they just one of many data points in the American landscape? I think people still get incredibly excited about national parks. Uh, yes, the, the situation has changed a little, you know, it's certainly more crowded now, uh, at least at the top parks. Uh, but these landscapes are just so incredible. They're such a part of who we are. And, you know, as Ken Burns, you know, pointed out in his documentary, it's such an American idea. You know, the this this concept of these beautiful public places open to everyone. I mean, that was a revolutionary concept. Uh, and that was something that was born right here. It's spread around the world. You can go all over the world. You can visit beautiful places. And there are <laughs> incredible places, iconic landscapes all over the world. But I think the fact that that idea of a national park, that idea of a place for the public and not a place that's shut off only for the benefit of private individuals, that is a powerful, powerful idea. Uh, you know, it's up there with democracy and really the fact that we're the intellectual birthplace of that idea is something that's, you know, to be incredibly proud of. And, you know, compared to other national parks around the world, you know, yes, we have our funding shortfalls, but really the way that we've taken care of these places is is pretty extraordinary. It's interesting that you grew up in the shadow of Acadia National Park because that's a park that I literally learned about while I was taking my 1994 trip. And I was amazed by New England because I grew up in Kansas. I grew up in the middle of the country. And so I sort of had this Western prejudice that things were just sort of bigger and more spectacular <laughs> out West. And so then I went, I drove through the Green Mountains of Vermont and it just blew my mind. And then I went to the Maine coast and I realized that Maine is actually a really big state. So 
you sort of had a, and, and of course, actually growing up in Kansas, there are no national parks in Kansas. And so um, I very much dreamed about places like Yosemite or Yellowstone or other iconic places. So keeping in mind that you grew up near a, a classic national park in Maine, what what places were really pinging on your radar as national parks out west when you were growing up, out west or down south or wherever? Yeah. And I mean, I, I want to say you hit on a great point, which is, you know, there's this bias towards, oh, all, all the national parks are in the West and everything's bigger and grander out West. And I, I'll i say it is bigger. The mountains are bigger. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's just a different experience, right? Um, Mount Katahdin in Maine, which hopefully maybe one day will become a national park, uh, you know, it rises essentially a mile above the landscape and you know you say ah you know a little over 5000 feet that's nothing compared to the mountains out west but if you climb a lot of mountains and national parks you're starting at a very high elevation <laughs> mm. and so from a relative standpoint you know there's a lot of drama on the east coast too it's just not doesn't reach those same you know 13 14000 foot heights um, but getting back to your question you know, for me, uh, growing up next to Acadia, for one thing, it becomes perfectly normal that, you know, one of the most beautiful national parks in the U.S. is at your doorstep. It would, to me, I didn't know there was any other reality. I thought that, you know, maybe everybody grew up with, you know, a, a fantastic national park right next to them. But I do remember when I got interested in art and photography and that sort of thing, obviously you gravitate towards Ansel Adams and Ansel Adams you know, he's still an icon. Um, I would say in the pre Instagram days, he was an even bigger icon because, you know, you didn't have sort of all these famous, you know, photographers at your fingertips. And I remember looking through his books and obviously Yosemite was sort of, you know, that was his inspiration. That was where he did some of his most incredible work. And I just remember looking at those images and thinking, wow, you know, what is this place? You know, it's incredible that you could you know, capture images like that from this incredible place. Uh, so I was really, you know, really focused on getting to Yosemite and seeing what Ansel Adams had seen. I mean, obviously Grand Canyon, um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt called it the one great site that every American should see. And it's true. It's this global landmark and there's nothing like visiting it for the first time and, and seeing what all the fuss is about. Okay, so listeners might not know, but because I'm talking to James in Colombia, his internet cut out because of repairs, and so if the sound quality is slightly different, you now you know why. Um, but before we cut out, I asked you a question, which I'll ask again, and this is when you took that early trip across America in, in your van to discover places, you know, obviously there were the Ansel Adam places like Yosemite on your radar and the Grand Canyon, but are there any national parks that sort of caught you by surprise that you didn't know much about before? You know, when I was driving cross country, I was really, really hitting the highlights, Grand Canyon, Yosemite, uh, those sort of big places that I had heard about and seen photos of. But I got to say, coming from New England, the landscape in New England is so lush and green. I mean, that's sort of that's our concept of beauty is, you know, uh, leafy trees and and lakes and ocean. And and when I drove out west driving past some of those big parks like Grand Canyon, uh, driving past Joshua Tree, you know, the, the, the Southwest desert is just a completely different landscape. It is something that, 
I had never experienced before. I'd never seen that. It was a completely different concept of beauty. And it took a little while to wrap my head around that as a beautiful place. You know, at first it seems like a barren wasteland, but then you spend a few days in it. You start to realize these subtle, subtle differences and these things that weren't immediately apparent. And that was something that really, you know, hit me pretty hard. And in, in the following years, I've done several guidebooks to, to parks in that region, uh, you know, the desert Southwest and the Colorado plateau. And it, it has gotten so under my skin. It, it, it continues to be one of my favorite places. And I think one of the most beautiful places I've ever visited. I think one advantage of traveling in the U S which does have this nice collection of national parks is that there is so much diversity of things that you can find. Uh, and you know, when I was in the, in the Northeast, we were talking a second ago, how we sort of privilege, uh, the big open spaces of the West. I climbed Mount Washington in New Hampshire and I was amazed by like the stories of death there. Like all these people have died climbing on Mount Washington, m much more so than these mountains in the West. And so, like you said, it doesn't like altitude isn't necessarily the the indicator of a challenging mountain. Um, another thing, another great thing that that national parks do is they sort of brand places. Um, that growing up in Kansas, there wasn't really any nationally um, recognized places, but since then, there's been a national Tallgrass National Monument in eastern Kansas, and it gives people a pretext to stop by. I think one nice thing about the national parks is that it it's a way of branding specific places to sort of showcase the diversity of landscapes in the U.S. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, it is another one of those wonderful things about national parks is, you know, they're created to protect places that are either beautiful or they have scientific value. Um, and a lot of times you, you can have these incredible places in your own backyard and you're not even aware of it. Often people that are from a place you know, that's when you're most blind to what's actually in your own backyard. And I think the great thing about national parks is, you know, you can go to a website, findyourpark.gov, uh, type in your zip code and see what national parks and monuments or national seashores are close to you. And you can find some amazing places. They don't have to be national parks to be amazing. Uh, and I think that it's, it's such a great resource for people to understand how many incredible places there are in the U.S. and how many are actually probably closer than you think. And what's that resource again? Uh, findyourpark.gov. Okay. Yeah, be, one fun thing about my trip around the U.S. 25 years ago is that a lot of the places that really amazed me were not technically national parks. It was like the Uintah National Forest in Utah, for example, or... Ocala National Forest in, in Florida, which isn't spectacular, but I found really peaceful after my experiences in Florida. Uh, and so presumably these destinations, actually hum, uh, Humboldt Redland State Park in California. So you can find all these places on that website? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're 100% correct. There are national monuments that are spectacular. I mean, they deserve to be national parks. Uh, but they're not yet. Maybe they'll become national parks someday. I mean, a lot of our most famous parks started out as national monuments and then got converted into national parks. And I don't think we're done with that process yet. Uh, you know, we're up over uh, over 60 parks, national parks, um, but there's over 400 
national park units, which includes national monuments, national seashores, national forests in the national park uh, system. Sorry, not national forest. That's a separate uh, government agency. But there's over 400 units, and some of them are spectacular. And they get overlooked because, honestly, people gravitate towards these big parks, just like I did on my first road trip. You know, um, a couple years back for the the National Park Centennial, I wrote an article for uh, National Geographic's website about the top 10 least visited national parks in the U.S. Hmm. And some of these places, you know, they get less than 10,000 visitors a year. Um, and they are extraordinary. They're spectacular. Uh, but because they're not famous, people don't gravitate to them the way that they do, you know, your Yosemites, your Grand Canyons. Um, but these are, you know, some of the uh, most incredible places you can visit. So I always sort of chuckle, you know, people talk about, uh, crowds in national parks and it's certainly true. Um, but it's, it's a lot of that is concentrated in the most famous parks. And if you sort of step outside that and seek out some of these, you know, places that aren't as well known, you're going to find some incredible landscapes. Yeah, I think there's a corollary there in international tourism because you go to Barcelona or Venice and it can seem like there's a tourist apocalypse happening, but you don't have to travel very far out of those places to get to have locations more to yourself. So I'm, I'm sure that happens at a national park level too. And, you know, sometimes the, the, the reason we, we gravitate towards the famous ones is because that's what we know. You know, I remember being, I went to college in Oregon and, I was traveling south to California and, and telling my friends how excited I was to go to Glacier National Park uh, in the southern part of the state, which which was true. But a lot of my Oregon's friends said, look, there's more to see than Glacier National Park in that part of Oregon. Um, and they really helped give me some perspective on the options in a place, in a beautiful place like southern Oregon. That's totally true. And, and I think your analogy was entirely correct. You know, you say you go there are these European cities that are experiencing supposedly a tourist apocalypse. Uh, you know, I was in Venice a few years back and, you know, Venice, you know, is obviously swamped, uh, you know, during peak season, but you go just a couple blocks off the main, you know, walkways and you'll, you can find places where you have Venice to yourself. And it's the exact same thing with national parks. It's not just these, you know, uh, national parks that people don't think about that are off the radar where you can escape the crowds. You can put me in any big national park that I know about, Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Acadia, um, Zion. You can put me there on Memorial Day weekend, which is generally you know the busiest weekend of the year, uh, or Labor Day weekend or the 4th of July. And I, I can easily find a beautiful spot with no crowds. All it takes is a little bit of know-how and a little bit of effort. But what happens is all the crowds, not only do they gravitate towards these you know, sort of name-brand parks, but within those parks, there's a handful of famous viewpoints or, you know, famous hikes. And that's where everybody gravitates to. So all it really takes is a little bit of creative thinking, a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of physical effort. And you can have a, a wilderness experience that's peaceful and beautiful. And you wouldn't know that there are any crowds anywhere in the park. Yeah, I think I think counterintuition is good, too. You know, one of my favorite experiences ever in any national park was hiking to Wolf Lake in Yellowstone, which where a normal year would have had a lot of people there. But I had it to myself with a couple of friends because the year before the forests around there in 1993 had burned down. And so it was sort of seen as this damaged, compromised part of Yellowstone. Well, 
it was still beautiful. And I got to swim in the lake with my three closest friends and, and, and have it to myself. So I think it feels like national parks really reward um, that, that impulse to, to try something different. Absolutely. That's, that's one of the best ways you can experience them. And, you know, obviously what we're talking about here, uh, you know, the tendency to gravitate to a specific park or a specific place, you know, within that park, it's sort of been turbocharged by social media. Uh, that's something that has really, you know, sort of, it was always sort of an issue, but it's just gone into overdrive. Yeah. And I think the advantage of that is that it, it sort of ghettoizes where people go to, you know, that maybe everybody goes to that same Instagram viewpoint at Yosemite. But if there's uh, 500 more people per week there than in other places, there's 500 people per week less in other parts of the park. And I do, <laughs> I, I do want to get to the just sort of the the current texture of national parks now, because my experience in national parks is is really decades old. Because I've been doing more international travel of late. But I just I love national parks so much, and I'm curious to know not just about what's happening there. But about strategies for experiencing them uh, in the 21st century. But before we get there, I'm curious to know how you became an expert on and a writer about national parks and, and what sort of instincts you've developed over the years. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, my story, uh, like I said, I grew up next to Acadia National Park. Uh, always went there with my family during the summer uh, when I was in high school. You know, I worked in restaurants in Bar Harbor, which is, you know, a famous town that's right outside the park uh, in college. Same thing. So I really I knew the area extremely well when I graduated from college in 1999. Uh, you know, it was I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I had gone to Hawaii with my dad on a father son trip, um, you know, the the spring break of my senior year and picked up a, a guidebook to Hawaii that was written by some locals, obviously self-published. Um, and they just did an amazing job. It was, you know, I'd never seen a guidebook like it before. It, it, it covered all these, you know, hidden places and it had great background information and, you know, nice photos. And I just thought, wow, you know, as I'm sort of considering what I want to be doing with, with my life, I just thought, wow, what, what a great gig these guys have. And as I started thinking about it and doing a little bit of research, I realized that at that point, you know, there wasn't uh, a good guide to Acadia National Park. There were guides, but they they just weren't they weren't like what I had seen with this guidebook to Hawaii. Um, and I thought, you know what, uh, I'm not sure what I want to do before I go out to the real world, get a real job. Uh, I want to go back to Maine and and you know really spend the summer exploring Acadia in depth, learning about you know, the, the park in a way that I never had and, you know, just putting something together and, and seeing how it goes. I thought if nothing else, you know, I'll have a fun summer exploring the park and, you know, if something comes out of it, that's great. So I spent, you know, that summer and that fall, uh, hiking every trail, reading every book I could, you know, learning everything I could about the park and came out with a guidebook to Acadia the, the following summer. And it did great. You know, people were hungry for that sort of guide. They, they were really, you know, it felt like people were looking for something that, that had more than what was out there. Um, and you know, uh, it was, uh, it was a big success for, you know, my, uh, first time self-published book. It wasn't, you know, uh, a giant success in terms of something that, you know, was certainly going to put food on my table for the rest of my life. 
But uh, I thought, you know what? That was a really neat experience. I'd love to see if I could maybe do this again someplace else. So at that point, I moved out to California, moved out west, you know, where there's lots of national parks, and uh, did a guide to Joshua Tree. Had the same experience. And at that point, I decided, you know, I'm all in. I think I could, you know, maybe make a career out of this. And I've just been doing guides to, to national parks ever since. And how do you how do you approach the national parks in such a way that you feel like you can write about them with insight? What what have you learned over the years about experiencing national parks um, that that allows you to communicate something unique to your readers? Well, I think the number one thing is you know much like sort of uh, NPR or PBS, you know, I I tend to take the the subscribe to the philosophy that uh, in a world filled with media that's making you dumber people are hungry for media that, that makes you smarter. And in national parks, there's so much to learn about national parks. I mean, it's just incredible how deep these places go. If you want to learn about the geology, the ecology, the history, there's so much in each of these places to learn. And my approach is obviously going out, hiking every trail, you know, uh, spending incredible amounts of times in the park to get great photos, you know, to be there when the light is right, when the weather's right, you know, all of that. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of, you know, on the ground experience that comes in the park, but then just reading everything that I can possibly get my hands on, you know, about the geology, about the ecology, about the history, uh, about the artists that visited the parks and really sorting through and doing all that research and sort of, Winnowing it down, making it uh, accessible, making it interesting, making it something so that if somebody picks up one of my books, they can go into the park, they can, you know, learn a little about a lot. Um, and if there's something that really piques their curiosity, something that they said, you know, wow, this geology is, is absolutely fascinating. I had no idea. You know, they can move on to sort of those, those, those deeper, more complex resources. But I think really what, what, what I've worked so hard on over the, the years is really being a bridge between sort of some really dense information about geology and, you know, the natural world, and the history and, you know, people that are there on vacation, they're there, they want to have a good time. Maybe they want to learn a little bit about it. Um, and it's my job to sort of provide that opening, you know, give them the basics uh, so they can learn a little bit about these places. And then if they want to continue on from there, that's great. And I, you know, to me, that's my dream is when people pick up my books and they learn something about the parks that they didn't know before. And, you know, it strikes their curiosity. You know, I always dream that there's, you know, a family traveling with one of my guidebooks and there's a, a kid in middle school who starts, you know, reading about the geology and it just, it makes him more fascinating. It makes him more excited when he goes back to school. Hey, this is something that I never realized it could be so interesting and I want to learn more. So that's really what I try to do with my guidebooks. And, you know, uh, people have really responded to it. Well, I, I do want to dig into the, the 21st experience of national parks in a second, but I have two really random side questions. Um, one of which is uh, did you first learn about the Joshua Tree National Park through the U2 album? And the second one is, um, do you ever get a hard time from Maine residents for calling it Bar Harbor instead of Bar Haba? <laughs> so number one, uh, U2 was absolutely the first time that I heard about the Joshua Tree. I, I was growing up in New England. I had no idea that Joshua Trees even existed. And that album came out 
you know, I still remember buying that album at the at the record store, uh, you know, my hometown. And, you know, it's got this weird black and white photo of the band, you know, with this Joshua tree. And it's like, what is this? You know, what is this? Uh, so that was absolutely the first time I, you know, heard about that. Uh, regarding Bar Harbor. So I don't have a Maine accent because my dad is actually from Chicago. My mom is from Maine. If you follow it through her, I'm a fifth generation Mainer. But, uh, you know, uh, Acadia is on Mount Desert Island, which some people also call Mount Desert Island. Hmm. And, you know, some people call it one thing. Other people call it another. Some people pronounce Bar Harbor one way, other another. You know, what I've found is that nobody gets too riled up about it. And, you know, Maine's kind of a, a live and let live kind of place. And so, uh, you know, people just basically say whatever they want. Yeah, one one funny thing about reading my journals from back then was just being completely astounded by how people in Philadelphia speak differently than people in Maine who speak differently in, in Ohio. So it's, it's sort of funny how naive I was about those regional differences. Um but let's talk about let's talk about the experience of the parks. You know, you talk, you've talked a lot about geology, and there's a sense in which geologic time has made these parks what they are. But in the 25 years since I really went deep with these national parks, a lot of things have changed. And so, what do you think are the the most relevant new trends and developments in national parks right now, and what's it, what it's like to visit them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, more than anything else, it's the the sheer volume of, of visitors. Um, that has been the, the the big story of national parks over the past decade, uh, you know, two decades. And I remember going around in, in 1995, you know, uh, in my van, pulling up to Yosemite and just grabbing a random campsite. Uh, and it was not hard to do. You just pulled in there and, you know, there were available campsites, you know, in the in the pre-internet days there was so much less information floating around that it was just much harder to, to plan ahead. You couldn't reserve online. You know, there was, there was none of that. And so it was very easy to just show up at these places, you know, on a moment's notice and find a place to stay, you know, find a campsite. Uh, that has completely changed at the top parks. Um, you know, there are still some first come first serve, you know, campsites and in, in all of the big parks, but in a lot of cases, you got to get there early in order to, you know, move in right when somebody's moving out. And as far as online reservations, you know, these places are booked, you know, as soon as they're available. Uh, I read an article recently about bots. There are these, you know, bots that are snatching up all the all the online reservations, which is making it even harder for people to to get there. So it really what you could previously just go and visit on a whim these days, it often takes a lot more advanced planning, certainly during the busy season in the off season, you can still sort of, you know, there's, there's still some wiggle room, but that the, the volume of tourists has been the number one story about how national parks have changed, you know, since the nineties when you and I were driving around in vans and, and checking these places out. Um, you know, I had uh, an interesting conversation with uh, a park ranger in Yosemite. He retired recently, but he, you know, had been working there for decades. And this was in, I think we were talking about 2006. And he was saying that uh, permits, wilderness permits to go backpacking in Yosemite had actually peaked in the, I think in the mid 1970s. Huh. And, you know, what he was saying, and that was sort of when he was coming up uh, in the national park system was, 
you know, back then it was a reflection of, you know, the 1960s counterculture hippie movement back to the land, you know, people getting back to nature uh, that had a huge impact on people visiting uh, national parks and wanting to go backpacking and wanting to spend time outdoors. It peaked in the mid 70s. He said it then declined through the late 70s, throughout all of the 1980s. I think it started picking up maybe in the 90s. And it wasn't until the mid 2000s that it had reached that peak once again uh, that it had achieved in, in the 1970s. And, you know, since then, it's, it's done nothing but gone up. And, you know, uh, that's for a variety of reasons. Um, but I, I think that there are these, you know, cultural impacts on the parks where suddenly, you know, it's trendy to be outdoors and camping uh, in a way that it wasn't, you know, 30 years ago. Um, I think these things have an impact on the park and sort of where national parks fall and, you know, the, the sort of consciousness of the nation. Obviously, you know, when, when Ken Burns came out with the national parks documentary, um, that was, that had a huge impact. I mean, uh, really that brought so much attention to the parks and as somebody who was, had been working, you know, nonstop in the parks before and after that seems like that was sort of a watershed moment in bringing awareness of the parks uh, to, you know, the, the population in terms of how special these places truly were. Everybody knew that they were special, but he really, you know, put into context, uh, you know, how, how they fit into the larger picture of the story of the United States. Then we had the, the centennial of the National Park Service in 2016. So following Ken Burns National Parks, then you have the centennial. And the National Park Service got very excited about it, was promoting it. You know, there's all this stuff built around it. And I mean, that was like pouring gasoline on the fire. Uh, you know, visitation exploded, absolutely exploded. And I think <laughs> since then, everyone at, at all the big parks and the National Park Service is sort of, they were very proud to celebrate the centennial. But I think there's this sort of sense of, okay, let's, you know, sort of be a little more quiet, you know, about, <laughs> about all of this at this point, because now we're feeling the effects of what happens when you have so many people visiting national parks and there are a lot of challenges that come with it. Um, you know, congestion, traffic, uh, overcrowding, uh, you know, these are, these are the new challenges that the park service is facing. It's, it's interesting how, there's sort of a balance where you want to promote the national parks because they're so special and they really protect huge swaths of nature. But at the same time, if they become so virally popular, then you have these problems. You know, in 94, when I visited all these national parks, I remember, I think Glacier National Park was the, really the only place that I had limited options because of overpopulation. Where I hiked basically for about a week in Glacier National Park was dependent on what was available. And it now sounds like that is much more the rule rather than the exception. So I'm curious what kind of strategies, for my listeners who might be a little bit intimidated by the idea of all these crowds, what kind of strategies might you offer for the 21st century national park visitor to sort of sidestep or at least lessen the impact of this overcrowding? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a fantastic question. And, you know, we sort of touched on it earlier, uh, talking about, you know, uh, a lot of this sort of, you know, we'll call it overcrowding problem. I tend to think of it as an overconcentration problem. Hmm. Uh, people are sort of overconcentrating in a, you know, the top 10 parks, you know, the famous ones that you think about when you think about national parks and then within those parks at certain areas. And so really, you know, the thing to do is to, 
to to not necessarily follow the crowd uh you know uh i think everybody should visit you know the the big famous parks but if you go there maybe check out some of the the areas that are less visited you know they all have incredible areas that are not you know okay maybe it's not yosemite valley and you're not standing in front of yosemite falls when it's roaring you know in the spring but yosemite is filled with incredible landscapes in the backcountry uh you know up near tuolumne uh, really, you don't have to go far to, to find these incredible places. So I think if you go to one of the top parks, don't be afraid to, to visit, you know, places that aren't, you know, the top highlights. Don't feel like, you know, you have to only experience the highlights, you know, take a little time, do a little research and, and explore some of the other parts of the park. The other thing is there are all these national parks that are not in the top 10 that are spectacular. They're gorgeous. Um, so check out some of those other places that, you know, aren't as famous. Um, and if you want to take it a step further, check out some of these national monuments. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's national monuments that are going to get converted into national parks. Then as soon as that happens, there's going to be a surge in visitation, uh, explore them now, you know, now's the time to go and check out these incredible places. Yeah. You know, I, I think I, I've actually talked about this in the context of other kinds of travel, you know, the idea of the bucket list driving our journey. And I think that's great, but I've I've said before the bucket list should get you out the door. You know, that the Instagram pictures of Yosemite or Yellowstone that blow your mind and make you want to be there can get you out the door, but once you get to Yosemite or Yellowstone, just realize that that is one data point among all these amazing places in the national park. And you know, when I was in Utah, I went to Arches, Nash, Arches National Park. It had just become a, a national park. I think when Edward Abbey was there and wrote Desert Solitary, it was a national monument. But I also went to Uintah National Forest up in the north of the state, and I loved it. And I went to a place called Fisher's Towers. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's, it's BLM land, and it's sort of this wild E. Coyote landscape in Utah. And my experience of Utah was enhanced by Arches, but the fact that I wandered off and, and sort of gave myself permission to wander away from the marquee sites really made that my memories of Utah special. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, same thing with Zion National Park. I just uh, came out with a new book to Zion and there's all this BLM land, you know, that's right outside the park. Uh, nobody goes there. You can camp there. You can you can hike there. The landscapes are incredible. Um, but everybody heads straight into the park. Uh you know, I think one strategy uh, that might be useful, you know, if you're planning a trip to some of these these popular parks, go on Instagram, you know, hashtag whatever the park is, hashtag Yosemite, hashtag uh, Zion. Look at, you know, the top pictures and don't go to those places. Hmm. You know, <laughs> those are the places you should avoid. Say, OK, I'm not going to go here. I'm not going to go here. I'm not going to go here. Uh, where else can I go? Because, you know, if it's trending on Instagram, it's probably going to be packed. Yeah, and I think there's some people who will think, my God, what a, what a weird idea. But it's true that oftentimes those beautiful views that you see on Instagram have 320 people behind the given photographer who are also waiting to take the picture full of no people. And yeah, so I, absolutely. It's like an act of faith. I think that you just have to trust that, uh, that America's national parks will provide. Or BLM, 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 for listeners who don't know, is Bureau of Land Management. Uh, and then there's all these these interesting sites that are often within striking distance of Instagram ground zero that you can have to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
You know, uh, you hit on a great point, you know, talking about, you know, you go to this incredible view and there's 300 people behind you. Uh, there was a, a, an interesting story in, I think it was the Wall Street Journal about Horseshoe Bend, Arizona, which is this sort of famous bend in the, in the Colorado River. It looks like a horseshoe. Uh, and, you know, up until a few years ago, you know, a couple people a day went there or a couple dozen you know, it was sort of a place that, ah, if you happen to be driving by and you saw the sign, you'd pull over. And uh, in the age of Instagram, this place has exploded. Now you can't find parking. Multiple people have died, you know, Jeez. trying to get the most dramatic shot that they can at Horseshoe Bend. I mean, you know, it's just the, the accidents have gone through the roof. And, you know, is it a beautiful spot? Yeah, it's a beautiful spot. But you know, uh, there are other spots that are gorgeous, uh, with incredible views of the Colorado river, uh, that aren't, you know, horseshoe bend and there aren't a lot of people there, you know, all you got to do, you sort of got to step back into the, the 1990s framework where back then you really had to do some research, you know, you, information was not abundant and overflowing. And, uh, you know, you really had to spend more than five minutes, you know, like cruising on your smartphone to find some info. But if you're willing to do that, you're willing to, you know, look into what else is out there. You can still find incredible spots, you know, in all of these parks and all of these places. It feels like individual initiative is really the key, you know, that given the fact that everybody tends to cluster at the same places, that your individual initiative is really rewarded. But I'm curious, are the parks themselves implementing any strategies to sort of help adapt to this overcrowding? You know, it's really tough. Uh, the Park Service is, you know, sort of from its very founding, it was given uh, kind of an impossible mission to fulfill, which is that on the one hand, the Park Service is there to protect and preserve the landscape. On the other, they're there to protect and preserve it for the enjoyment of the public. Uh, they have these two mandates, which are often conflicting. Uh, I have tremendous uh, sympathy and respect uh, for oh, everyone who's working in national parks because it's it's a very difficult and challenging thing. How do you preserve and protect a place and at the same time allow it to be open to everyone, to the public, for their enjoyment? Um, it's a very tricky thing, and they have to walk this tightrope. And so I, you know, uh, there there are people that get upset at the National Park Service. You know, there's visitors that that get angry because. You know, uh, they're not allowed to go somewhere or, you know, they didn't know they needed a permit. Um, it, it, it's a tricky situation and, and the park service is really doing their best. And I, you know, I think that they are doing a good job. A lot of parks, uh, for example, in Acadia this is a perfect example. They just, uh, have been reviewing a new transportation plan to figure out what they want to do, uh, to accommodate all the new visitors and, you know, uh, Zion national park was one of the first places to deal with this issue for, you know, uh, geographic reasons. Zion is a very concentrated park, you know, Zion Canyon, it's a small Canyon. There's one way in, there's one way out. And they started dealing with this overcrowding issue, um, decades before everybody else. What Zion decided to do was, uh, instead of, uh, you know, letting private cars go up and down the Canyon, whenever they wanted, they made the decision, um, you know, around the year 2000 that, they were going to not allow private vehicles in the canyon and they were going to uh, institute a shuttle service instead. So everybody had to ride a public shuttle that was free, um, but you couldn't take your car and go up and down as you, as you pleased. 
this generated huge backlash. Uh, people were very unhappy, you know, people that have been visiting for, for decades, uh, suddenly, you, you know, you can't drive where you want to drive. But what happened was after the shuttle system was implemented, uh, it got rave reviews. All of a sudden people realized that, Hey, this is a great thing. I don't have to spend my time looking for parking. You know, uh, the Canyon is less polluted. It's less noisy. There's less congestion. Um, is it a change? Yeah, it's a change, but it, it was an overwhelmingly positive change. So I think that there are a lot of strategies like that, that parks are going to be putting in place, especially the parks that are getting the big visitation and look, nobody likes change. You know, it's, 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 it's difficult wherever it is, but I think that I've come to the conclusion personally that, uh, while it is different than the world you knew, uh, in so many cases, it, it winds up being so much better. Um, you know, it's less hassle for the visitors. It's less hassle for the park. And once you adjust and adapt to it, it really is a, an improved experience. So I think that you're going to be seeing a lot more of that going on. You're going to be seeing a lot more, okay, private vehicles aren't just going to be able to go wherever they want, whenever they want. You're going to see more shuttles. Um, you're going to have to plan ahead. There's going to be more uh, times when you need reservations, uh, that are, you're gonna have to plan maybe a couple months in advance. Um, is it a hassle? Sure. But it's better than going to a place where, you know, you show up and it's just hordes of people and, uh, not well planned out, not well designed. So I think that's the trend. And I think it's a positive thing. It sounds like change is a, is a central thing here too, because when you, when you look at the overcrowding of tourists in Barcelona, probably part of the problem was that was Airbnb that basically it was bringing tourists in neighborhoods that weren't used to having tourists into residential neighborhoods. And, and saturation spread out in a way that in principle could work, you know, go to a less popular neighborhood, but in practice was annoying to people and it actually changed the, the, the real estate market in that city. So moving, moving along from, uh, from the, you know, the big, group, big picture group stuff, I have a question for you that, that, that sort of has a, a split... Um, meaning here. And one is, are there any smartphone tools that you can use to help navigate national parks? Yet, are there parts of national parks that can allow you to unplug from smartphones completely? So I realize that's two very different questions in one, but I'm curious to know about the smartphone factor and the the potential to escape your digital life in 21st century national parks. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that, that's a really interesting question. And it's something that, uh, I think this could be part of also what's driving a surge in visitation in national parks, you know, oddly on the one hand you have social media, you know, Instagram, people wanting to get that shot. On the other, you have a lot of people that are looking to unplug and disconnect and take a break because it's, it's frantic, it's overwhelming and national parks still provide, you know, this refuge from, you know, sort of the, the hectic, chaos of the modern world. Um, is it possible to find those places? Absolutely. You know, the, certainly, uh, in a lot of these parks, uh, each year, it seems like you're getting another bar of cell service in a place where you didn't have it the year before. Hmm. Uh, so the, the possibility to continue to use your device, uh, is growing, you know, every year at the same time, uh, there are still absolutely pockets where there's no service whatsoever. Um, and the other thing is, you know, you can just switch off your phone. It's, it's, it's easy to do. Um, but I, I do think that that experience of 
you know, taking a break, shutting off your device, uh, unplugging for a few days, uh, that is just becoming, uh, such a luxury. It's such a rarity that I think that it's, it's one of those, you know, uh, when the national park service was founded, you know, when national parks were founded, I don't think anybody had this on their radar at all, but I do think that moving forward, that's going to be another, uh, really important component of, of what makes them, uh, special and important places. Um, getting back to the, the question of, you know, what you can use on your phone to, to improve your park experience. I mean, personally, for me personally, I, I like unplugging, you know, that's what, that's what I do when I go to national parks. I like being disconnected. Uh, I'm not wandering around, you know, with my app and, and, you know, fiddling around and getting distracted, you know, because I'm getting a notification or a message or whatever. I like to unplug. Um, that said, uh, talking about reservations for campsites and that kind of thing, how it's a little bit, uh, difficult. There are some new, um, camping apps and camping websites, uh, that are great for finding camping, uh, spots outside of national parks. So maybe all the campgrounds are booked in the park. Um, but sites like Campendium and hip camp, uh, those are great tools for, for finding campsites outside of the park. Uh, and sometimes often, you know, not too far outside the park. So if you go, you know, on recreation.gov is the, is the government website, or sorry, the website that handles government reservations at, uh, at national parks. If you go on there and you see, you know, every campsite is booked in Yosemite or Grand Canyon or wherever, doesn't mean you can't go and camp there, but maybe you're going to be camping outside the park. And by the way, some of those campsites are great. They're in national forests. They're less crowded. Some of them are, you know, along a riverbank. Uh, they're beautiful. So I think those are really helpful resources uh, for visiting national parks. Yeah, it's interesting how that whole thing has changed. And, and one thing I might remind visitors of is that you can voluntarily, as you implied, turn off your smartphone, that even though it has resources, you can sort of instigate your own time travel where suddenly you're back in 1994 because you've turned <laughs> off your freaking phone, right? <laughs> I, I'm curious uh, about how uh, international markets have changed national parks, because when I was in, you know, the Grand Canyon 25 years ago, I remember buses full of Korean tourists who were quite new at the time. Now, when you think of international markets, you think of the boom in Chinese tourists and travelers. And so how has the international presence of travelers changed the way national parks are experienced these days? Yeah, so that, uh, again, another great question. Um, it, international tourists have always been a large component of visitation to national parks, especially the, the very popular national parks, Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Yellowstone, all of those. Uh, but we are seeing certainly a surge in international travel. Um, you know, we live in a globalized world in a way that wasn't true even 20, 30 years ago. And um, you can see that reflected in the, the visitation uh, numbers. You know, uh, some of the, st the statistics that I've seen, uh, one in eight foreign tourists in the U.S. visits a national park in the summer. Uh, one in eight, you know, uh, that, that's a huge number. And I think that's because, you know, these national parks are internationally famous. Um, sure, people, when they visit the U.S., you know, maybe they want to see Disneyland or they want to see New York or they want to see L.A., San Francisco. But they also want to see, you know, these beautiful landscapes that, that we're famous for. And, you know, really the U S has remarkable landscapes. I've traveled all over the world and I'm still amazed at, you know, uh, uh, at, at 
the scenery that we have in the U.S. It, it's just really remarkable. And foreign tourists appreciate that. So you have a lot of foreign tourists that are visiting national parks. Um, you know, anecdotally, I haven't found any park service statistics about, you know, this percentage of, of this group, you know, uh, of Europeans, of uh, Japanese, of Chinese. I haven't, I haven't found any of those specific uh, statistics. I have talked to park rangers who have said anecdotally that they feel like maybe half or even a little more than half of visitors are international visitors, um, which is a huge amount when you think about it. But then if you just look at sort of the, some of the international trends, you know, uh, if you look at tourism spending, global tourism spending, China passed the U.S. around 2012 at about $100 billion of tourism spending globally, right? And the U.S., Germany, you know, Japan, those countries have sort of – it's been a very sort of steady growth over the past, you know, couple of decades. The growth in Chinese tourism, I mean, it's like a straight line up. Uh, they passed us in 2012 at about 100, 100 billion. The latest statistics that I've seen is they're now spending over 250 billion, uh, and at this point, the U.S. is spending less than 150 billion. So that is a huge, huge driver of tourism everywhere. Um, but in national parks, you know, uh, I was uh, out west, you know, driving between Zion and Bryce, and you see these tour buses. Um, you know, and they're, they're, I assume Chinese or Chinese American entrepreneurs that are bringing just busloads and busloads of, of Chinese tourists to see these iconic parks out West. And, you know, it's great. I love the fact that, you know, international visitors have this desire to see our parks, you know, and, and see this incredible thing that we've done and, uh, the way that we're preserving our landscapes and that we care about them. Um, at the same time, it creates challenges. I mean, sort of, you know, one of the funnier, uh, some of the funnier stories is uh, you look at bathrooms in national parks uh, since the rise of of Chinese tourism. You know, in Yellowstone a few years back, all of a sudden all the toilet seats started breaking. You know, the the park service was like, "Why are all our toilet seats breaking?" You know, we well, what's going on? And it turns out that in China, you know, they're used to to pit toilets. You know, a lot of the visitors uh, are used to pit toilets in China, and so when they see a Western toilet their instinct is to stand on it and squat like they would at a pit toilet at home. And, and all that standing on the seats was breaking the toilet seats. Uh, so that's, you know, sort of a, a funny challenge where it's like, okay, you know, a little bit of education, you know, a little bit of, Hey, you know, this is how this toilet works. Uh, you know, I think, uh, it, it's, it's something that I don't think, you know, park managers were, were envisioning when they were planning ahead, like, Oh, what are, what's our five-year challenge? Um, but it is something that's, that's impacting the parks. Um, uh, and I'm sure it, there's an inversion in, in, in Asian parks too. these Americans who are not used to these pit style toilets, which are, which are very clean and work great, but are just very confusing to the American mindset. So I'm sure it's just as confusing for Chinese people to figure out what you're supposed to do with this giant toilet that sits three feet off the ground. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And it's, it's just a cultural difference, right? It's just, uh, it is what it is. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's important that we're aware of these cultural differences um, so that we can, you know, better manage them on both sides. For sure. For sure. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who've, who've been listening and they're sort of inspired. Maybe they've always dreamed of going to national parks, but they're also a little bit intimidated by all of the, the new challenges that national parks are facing these days. So what kind of advice would you give people on 
like how to start, where to go, and how to approach a journey that involves American national parks? Yeah, so one of the best resources um, are the the nonprofit organizations that, that partner with the parks. So in Acadia National Park, that's Friends of Acadia. Uh, in Grand Canyon, that's the Grand Canyon Conservancy. In Yosemite, the Yosemite Conservancy. Many of these these famous national parks have a nonprofit partner uh, that raises funds. They help out. They lend a hand. You know, when uh, when federal funding doesn't come through, a lot of times they step in. And a lot of what they do also is outreach. So a lot of these these friends or conservancy uh, organizations, they'll offer you know guided hiking trips, you know, and maybe it's it's day hiking near the park or in the park. Uh, maybe it's an overnight backpack. Uh, maybe it's you know uh, a geology walk or a uh, birding walk. Uh, they have incredible resources. They're very affordable. A lot of times they also, you know, you, sometimes you got to worry about, you know, getting reservations for a campsite or a lodge or, you know, hiking permits, whatever it is. These organizations, they handle all of that and they're the best position to do it because, you know, they partner with the parks. I think if when you're planning on going to a park, if you look out, you look for those organizations, they all have websites. Look at some of the opportunities that they offer, um, you know. You're helping a great cause because the money's going towards a nonprofit that helps the parks. You know, a lot of times they have incredible access and they have really amazing programs. So I think that, you know, if you're feeling a little overwhelmed, a little confused, you know, how am I going to spend my time? What am I going to do? Check out those those uh, nonprofit websites, the partner with the parks, and you can you can find some incredible resources. That's great. I didn't even know about those, and I've spent a lot of time in national parks. Um, I know that you sometimes give slideshows and presentations to kids, that you often talk to people by your very profession about national parks. So on a final note, I'm curious to know, what are the best reasons to go? Why are national parks special? You know, for me uh, and and what I tell, uh, you know, kids all the time when I give these presentations is it, it's, a, it's a way to connect with the natural world. Um, these are some of the most beautiful natural places anywhere. And all of us, we're, we're all sort of being nudged in this direction of, you know, these digital lives, uh, you know, these sort of this, the hectic modern world. It's, it's so rewarding physically, emotionally, spiritually to take a little time and, and go back into nature and go back into a place that's still you know, wild and pristine and to experience that. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's part of what it means to, to live on planet earth, uh, is to experience these incredible places. And so I always tell people that, you know, that's, that's the number one thing that you can get out of uh, visiting a national park is, is connecting with the natural world. Uh, you know, really getting a sense of, of how beautiful and magnificent and overpowering everything is to put our own lives in perspective. Uh, I, I think there's, there's some of the best places in the world to do that. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to all of James Kaiser's American National Parks guidebooks can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. 